Father, as we prepare for worship service, we want to say a special prayer here at the beginning for Shana. We pray that you will be with all of the doctors. You trained them. We're going to talk a little bit about doctors today and where it came from. But we believe differently than what a lot of the world does. We believe that you are the one who gave the knowledge And you are the one who gives the wisdom and you are the one that provides the healing. And we pray that you will move the hands of each and every servant of yours as they take care of her. Whether it's the doctor, whether it's the anesthesiast, whether it's the people who prepared the room and cleaned it so that there's no bacterial infections. We just pray, Father, that you will be with her, that you will glorify yourself and your name through her and what you will do. And Father, we pray... At this time, as we, Psalm 100 has been on my mind this week as we prepare for this, that we're going to enter into your courts with praise and with singing and make a joyful noise unto you. And Father, you are so good. You've created us. We are not of ourselves, but we come from you. And Father, as we worship you, we pray that the songs that we have sung this morning lifts you up high. We pray, Father, that the word that we're going to study today to your church at Pergamos will be applicable to us. And this is only going to set the stage for the next two weeks, Father. This is really an introduction. But we pray that you will open our minds and our hearts and our understanding so that we can see it and live it and be a voice for you in this world that we live in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles if you have them with you today to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking there at verses 12 through 17. The letter of our Lord to the church at Pergamum. In Pergamum, it was a church that was engaged in compromise. If you have a Bible like I have, it actually even says for the heading of that church that the the compromising church the church that compromised the problem was was they were beginning to look like the world and to accept the world as a part of them and so let's take a deep long look at what was going on and today we're going to set the stage for the next two weeks because next week we're going to talk about a faithful witness as Bobby was leading us into his story this morning about a witness that was made Next week, we're going to talk about a great witness in Antipas who was actually murdered for our Lord. And then the week after that, we'll talk about some Nicolaitans and Balaam and maybe even get into um, the white stones and the manna that the Lord was going to give to those that are overcomers. But if you're with me now, this letter is for us today as it was for them. Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 12 says... To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works. I know where you dwell. It's where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr. He was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I do have a few things against you because you have those there 
who hold the doctrine of Balaam, and who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church is, to all of us. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give unto them a white stone, and on the stone is a new name written, which no one knows except the one who receives it. We have seen that Jesus used a, a portion to each church to introduce himself to that church, but it also sets the tone of the letter that's going to be written to that church from chapter 1 in the beginning, in the vision that John had of the Lord. That description is there, and the one that's used here is the sword that's going to come out of my mouth. And the only thing I could think of as I saw that is, I'm going to date myself. Whenever I was a kid, there was a show on TV, and there was a saying that was on T-shirts and bumper stickers, and it was, here comes the judge. And that's what he's saying here. Here comes the judge. That's what the letter here is introduced to us with. Now, it's been a while since we've been to chapter 1. We started this several weeks ago. So, in chapter 1, there was the vision of Christ. And he uses portions of this to each one of the churches. So, let's, I'll read to you, and it's on the slide above. From chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, John writes. And having turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands was one like the Son of Man. And he was clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And there's the picture we said of Jesus as the high priest of the church. And at the end it says that the lampstands represents the church. So here he's dressed as the high priest of his church, walking in the midst of his church. And it says this, His head and his hair were like white wool, white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And there's the one part that's taken to our church today. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, but now, behold, I live forevermore. Amen. So with that introduction of the book and then using each one of these pieces as introduction to the churches, I want you to notice that here in chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, that the Lord is intentionally, intentionally pointing him out, himself out to them as the one who has the authority to walk in the midst of the churches as the high priest and to this one I am coming to you 
with a sword of judgment if you do not change what you're doing. And what I want to know is this. What type of sword is that? What is this sword that it says coming out of his mouth? Is it a toy sword? I've got a couple of those. I've got a couple of plastic ones. Was that what he had? Did he use something like that? No. You look all the way over there to your right. That's the Ramphaya, and that's the word that's used here. And I put the three words that's used to describe this sword in this passage. He said that it was a sharp, two-edged sword. And those words mean this. Azus means razor sharp, but not only razor sharp, but eager. It is an eager sword to do what it is designed to do. Distomos. It actually means two-mouthed. And the idea behind that word that these people knew was it was bloodthirsty. It took two mouths to drink in. So it's a sword with two sharp edges on each side, but each side was a mouth that was designed to be a drinker of blood. And this type of sword is the Ramphaya. And the Ramphaya is the long sword that not only had a sharp edge on each side that cuts forward and back, but it also had the sharp point of piercing as well. So it was a sword that meant business. And in this day, they recognized that sword as a sword of judgment upon the deserving. So that's the picture that God the Father wanted God the Son, Jesus Christ, to give to Pergamum at this point. To the church at Pergamum, he said, verse 12, this message is to you from the Jesus, the one who walks in your midst as the high priest of his church with a sharp, eager, two-mouthed sword. Because you see, Pergamos, there's a double meaning going on here because Pergamos was one of the only cities in the entire Roman Empire that was allowed to perform capital punishment on their own. Most had to be done by Roman when it did that. You could go by your own laws for imprisonment and for for things like that. But if it was something that called for a death penalty, then you had to appeal to Rome. Do you remember with Jesus, the Jews couldn't put him to death, could they? They had to go to Pilate and see if Rome would give permission for Jesus to be put to death. Paul at one point said, I am a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar and he had to be sent to Rome. So not everyone had that ability to govern themselves fully. But Pergamum did because they were the first city to actually raise a temple up and worship to the Caesars. They were so closely aligned with Rome that Rome trusted them to do their government on their own. And so Jesus is saying, Pergamon thinks that they have the right to do what they want and that they have capital punishment in their own government. But I am king of kings. And I am Lord of lords, and I carry the sword with two edges that is deeper than theirs. So don't pay attention to what they tell you. You pay attention to what 
I tell you, because they don't mean as much as I do. I have the power over life. And that's what he was trying to get across to them at first. But already I'm thinking as I see this introduction that it ain't going to be good. You know, the introduction to some of the other churches was a little bit better to, to Ephesus. They had left their first love and he had a different type of introduction. To Smyrna, they were being persecuted and he used from chapter 1, I am the one who has died and been born again. So as you face all of your trials and your toughness, be rest assured that I've been there. It's a word of encouragement to them. This one is not a word of encouragement. And the reason that we need to study both the encouraging things like last week and also maybe a tougher lesson like this week is because I don't want anyone to be disappointed on that great day. My my calling is to share the word of God openly with you on what is truth. So that on that great day, you don't say, but Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name and didn't I cast out demons and didn't I do many marvelous works? And for him to look at us and say, I never knew you. I don't want that to happen to any one of you, to my family or myself. And so it's my calling to open this up. And rightly divide the word of truth with you here. And Jesus did the same thing with Pergamum. And it's to the churches. And so it's for all of us to know and to understand. And he says to this special church. One of only seven that's addressed. I know your works. I know what you've been doing. I know the good parts too. I know where you live. I know that the culture that you live in is terrible. It's so terrible that it's where Satan's throne is. It's where he actually dwells. And I know what you're going through. I know what they're pushing upon you. You was faithful to me. But there's some things that's going on. And that's truth. And the only reason we're covering it today is because it's the next section of Scripture that we come to. It's right there in verses 12 to 17. And it's what was the next one to study. So here we are. This is the first negative introduction to a church. Out of these seven. The church at Pergamos folks was in serious danger. And that danger isn't coming from external sources. It's coming from the Lord. It is clear from this letter that the problem is. That they were a compromising church. They compromised the truth. There was transformation. There was lives that were changed. Many were still faithful, but worldliness was creeping in with the doctrine of Balaam that we're going to study and with the Nicolaitans, and that was coming in, and they were allowing it. And he says, I do not allow that in my church. If you don't stop it, I'm coming with the Ramphia. And folks, we've got to figure out what those things are because I don't want him coming to new life in Perrigan to any of us with the Ramphia. Amen? Amen? So that's why we are studying this today. We've got to figure these things out. This was a church that was allowing anything to happen. 
to trying to please everyone. And the Lord says that if you do it still, I'm going to come with you with this sword. So they never wanted to teach the other side of the coin. They wanted to go out and reach everyone, but never change to the other side. Jesus said to go to those who are lost. To go to those who struggle with life and with sin and temptation. Tell them about me. Free them from the bondage of sin in their life. And that's what we do. We go to everyone. We love everyone. We go to them and plead with them to come out of that. And to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The Lord part is the other side of the coin. Look at verse 20 of Matthew 28. After he said to go into all the world, baptizing them and making disciples. And then he says, after you have taught them about me and they become my disciples, they've been believing and they baptize into my name. Teach them, teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Above all other things, the first thing he says is once they are my disciples, Begin teaching them about all of my commandments and all of my ways. And why? It's not because he doesn't want us to have fun. If I stop and think about every decision and everything that's caused trauma and trouble and problems in my life, it's probably because I didn't do what it says to do in the Word. How about you? If it may have been fun at the time, but you pay for it later. And he says... I don't want you to have to pay for anything. And you're not really giving up anything, but follow me. Then this message of what he told his disciples was continued on. What did Peter do on that first day, the day the church was born? He told them in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 38, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then what happened? Looked at verse 40. With many other words. He testified and he exhorted them saying. Be saved from this perverse generation. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. That day 3,000 souls were added to the church. They continued steadfastly in what? The apostles doctrine. Jesus said, after you baptize them into my name, after they are added to the church, teach them all the things that I have commanded you. They did just that. They stayed in the doctrine. They broke bread in prayer. That was fellowship together. So they had fellowship together as the body of Christ, and they had a guidance by the word of God. And fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So why teach them doctrine? Why? Because just like you and I, you've come out of society. We've come out of this world. We only know what we know and what we're raised in and what we've been doing. So it's, it's paramount that we begin to learn a different way. A different way to walk and to live and to do our life. The message was the same everywhere. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, I preach the same thing In every church. And in chapter 6 he goes to them and he says. Here's why I teach you a different way. Do you not know verse 9. 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Don't let anyone tell you anything different, in other words. And he lists all of these sins right here. But look what he says in verse 11. Such were what? Some of you. Yeah. Such were us. Let's just say such was me. Such is us. So what happens? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God whenever you believed and you did what you did. And that's the message we take to people that no matter what and where and what you've been through, what you have done, where you are at this very moment, you can be washed, you can be set apart, and you can be sanctified. But he says, you don't continue to stay in that condition You learn now from the words that we begin to teach you on how to be different. Why? Because unrighteousness doesn't inherit the kingdom of God. And we want the kingdom of God. So we need to learn. So he goes on. Here's another reason why. Don't you know, verse 19, your body is the temple now that you've believed and been baptized in me. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is in you That you have been given from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore we are now to glorify God in our body. And in our spirit. Because they are God's. So what was going on in Pergamum. Goes on every day. In every century. In every year. In every time period. All the way up to today. What we want to to know is, is that we need to be taught to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that we no longer walk in that way, but in the newness of life so that we do have an inheritance that's undefiled, incorruptible, laid up in heaven and stored there for us. And that's what we teach folks. Come on. Come on out of where you've been and walk with me in a new life. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to Pergamum here. I told you to come out of the society. Come out of the ways that they were doing. Don't allow that to come into you. Verse 19. If you are in Christ, you are not your own. What he is saying there to us is, you learned about me, you learned that sin separates you from me. But what you've also need to know now is that you have traded that. Whenever you came to me, I washed you clean. And now you have given up this life on this world that's only short for one that's there for eternity. So that is the trade-off that we make. We make a trade-off of not enjoying this life in everything that you want to do for what. He tells us to do so that we can have an eternal life with him. And that's your trade-off that you have. And so, folks, this is only the introduction. Are you ready to dig in now? That's the introduction. We're ready to go now. Pergamos, what was this city like? Well, it's where Satan's throne is. It doesn't sound like a place that I want to put on my bucket list, does it? You know, Honolulu, uh, Acapulco, 
Pergamum, Devil's Throne. No, I don't think so. It's not on your bucket list of places to go. It is a beautiful city. It's about 100 miles north of Ephesus where we started from. You know, there's still a city there today. It's called Bergamon, which sounds like Pergamon. It's actually the Turkish spelling of the biblical Pergamon. And there's still a small Christian community that is there. And when John penned this letter, Pergamon was the capital of Asia Minor, of that whole place. And it was the Roman affiliate. And they had their power, and it had been that way for about 250 years. The word actually means a high place, and it was on one of the highest points in all of the place. In the Pergamos, there was a large university, there was a medical center, there was a library. The library had 200,000 volumes. Paper in this type of place was rare. They, They tried to get more from Rome. And from Egypt, they didn't want to do it because they liked their libraries to be supreme to anyone else. And they they said, no, you're not going to outdo us. So they developed parchment, animal skins, in a way that they could write on them. So 200,000 volumes of books handwritten because there's no copy machines and no printers and computers. 200,000 volumes of books written on animal skins is quite a feat. It was well known. It was so well known and longed for that Mark Anthony actually raided the library and sent a great portion of it to his lover Cleopatra so that she would have that and it would be placed in in theirs and he, he raided it. So this was a place that was well known. Their worship was all about self. They had Athena. They had Hera. They had Dionysus and Bacchus and they had Zeus. They had Caesar. So they had all of these temples and all of these places of worship. And in the middle of all of that mess was this little church at Pergamon. And in fact, verse 13 says, I know where you, the church, dwell in Satan's throne. You're right there in the middle of that. He's got his operations, folks, all over the world. His throne is not in hell. His operation is not there. It's right here. That will be his eternal dwelling. But right now, he is right here. And he says, you are where his throne is. But Jesus is saying, I am the real king. And you guys know that. And our task then first, figure out what's this Satan's throne all about. I want to show you what they were living in and what they had to come out of in this area. Pergamum had a temple to Athena their patron goddess. Bacchus, or Dionysus, was the god of drunken debauchery. That's where debauchery comes from, is from Bacchus, the god there. Um, Demeter was the goddess of fertility and the harvest. It's the goddess of the dinner plate, the one who prepares, makes you prosperous and has the groceries on your table. That could be similar to our jobs, couldn't it, if we let that get in the way with, with God. Um, Zeus was there. Many believe that that this throne of Satan refers to the magnificent temple and altar of Zeus. There you see the artist's rendition of that that was taken from the actual archaeological digs and putting together of it. There you see the altar of Zeus. And if you look at it, 
the outside and the very interior portion are both shaped like a throne. It was a marvelous specimen. It was one of the wonders of the world. The decorative carving along the outside that runs all the way around it is 370 feet long by 10 feet high. And it had all of the carvings of all of the wars and the different things that that the god Zeus had been a part of. It had that throne on the inside which was 115 feet long. The stairwell was 65 feet wide. It was huge. It was a beautiful thing. And it was set on top of the Acropolis, the highest place. This was the ultimate of worship to them. And it kind of represents self-renown. It's all about me. And that's what the god Zeus meant to these people. Now... In the 1800s, German archaeologists got permission to remove the actual altar, and there you see a picture of it. That is the actual remains that was put back together by the German archaeologists. They got permission from Pergamon and the government to bring it back to Germany. They have a museum there called the Pergamon Museum, and that is the actual thing that was there in Pergamon, at the time of Paul's crusades and at the time of John writing this book. And these people here, that is it. And the reason that I go into this part of the history for you is, is not I want to make you a history buff. But I want you to see that the word of God is true. That everything that it mentions right here and Satan's throne was right there. You have archaeological proof today. The Bible started being written 3,500 years ago and not once has a word of it ever been proven to be false. And we can take every bit of it and retrace it and say, look, it is true and it should give you faith to stand upon. And the next thing that kind of strikes at me, so to speak, about their worship is not only this, but another one. It was a bizarre type of worship to a demigod by the name of Aesculapius. Now, Aesculapius is the god of healing, and he is the most associated god with Pergamum. He was known as the Pergamese god. Hippocrates is one of his descendants. There was a great medical school here. It was through demonic, dark mysticism and superstition. Let me tell you about this medical school. And about the emblem of the idol of Aesculapius as you see there. Myth has it that Aesculapius was the son of the god Apollo. And he had married a mortal woman by the name of Coronis. And you can see by that that Satan always tries to imitate God. Isn't that the story of Jesus? He's always trying to bring his form of imitation into the world. To distract you from the real thing. Now Coronis though was supposedly unfaithful to Apollos. And so out of jealousy, either he or some stories is told that his sister killed her as she was getting ready to deliver the child. And when they laid her on the fire that was getting prepared to burn then her body, that they C-sectioned and cut open from the womb the baby child and he lived and his name is Aesculapius. Aesculapius was then given the gift of healing and he was turned over to be raised by a centaur 
which is half horse, half man. And the centaur continued to teach him in the ways and the mysteries of the medical arts and sciences. He was able to supposedly raise the dead. And he used the blood of Medusa supposedly to do that. But a snake, he befriended this snake that was ill and was found. And the snake, in repaying him, one night as he slept, used his tongue to lick his ears and clean it out. And then he whispered into his ears the deepest, darkest secrets of death and resurrection. And that is the story of Escalapus and how he gets started. But what really frustrates me and what is really bothersome to me is this next slide because the American Medical Association, even today in America, uses what as their symbols? To the left is the carving of Escalapus. To the right, you see everything that is modern right here in the American Medical Association. Where do the roots come from? I don't know about you, but that is disturbing to me. It really is. I mean, I would like to have a different symbol than that of where they're saying that they get their roots from. Um, Doctors, whenever they graduate, they take an oath of what? The Hippocratic Oath, which is the descendant of Escalapus. His two daughters, one of them's named Hygieia and the other one Panacea. Hygieia, we teach her doctrine today. It's personal hygiene to our kids. Panacea was the goddess of complete cure. And so now you are feeling good about yourself. You're in a panacea. So all of these things come down from these mythical times and from this. Is it any wonder that we can't... Doctors nowadays practice medicine. A lot of them do. There's some good ones. But can you see the roots and where a lot of this stuff comes from? Now, part of the treatment, and I'm going to put a plug in for Wednesday night if you was here, you got to see a video on Pergamum and a lot of the things that we're talking about. And they had a video of walking through the long chamber and going to the temple of Escalapus where the snakes crawled all over the ground. And you checked in like you do at a regular hospital. But you don't get treated like a regular hospital. At this place, you tell them what's wrong with you and they send you down. And at night, you sleep on the floor. And the snakes are crawling all over the ground. And to get your cure, you will lay there and they endue you with their power. And also, they give you a vision of what your treatment should be. And then you go and tell the people that and then now you start receiving that kind of treatment. That is what was going on at the temple of Escalapus in Pergamon that this church was a part of. Another portion of it was, if you weren't healed, it wasn't the serpent's fault. It was because either you didn't have faith in the serpent or his sovereignty, he didn't want you to be healed. Don't know about you, but it sounds like a lot of faith healers today. It's not my fault. If you're not healed, you didn't have faith or God just decided that it wasn't your time, right? This is where the lie 
comes from. And this is where Satan's dwelling place was. When you see the throne of Zeus and you see Escalapus, which was known as the god of this place. And it was from medical to save life through a serpent. Now you know where Satan's throne is and what these people were going through, don't you? And in the middle of all of that mess was the church. And Jesus said, though, above all else, yet you still hold fast to my name. You're not denying my faith. And that's their commendation in all of this. And to me, that's amazing. I don't know about you, but they were able to hold fast my name. And that means everything about him. So, in other words, you didn't give your pinch of incense to the altar of of Zeus or to the altar of Caesar. You told folks that I am your king. You didn't deny my name and my faith. You know what? It goes deep. He said, you held fast right up to the end, even in the days of Antipas. Look at that verse there in verse 13. Even when Antipas, my faithful witness and martyr, he was murdered before your eyes because he held fast to my name and you guys didn't turn tail and run. You remained faithful during all of that. And I commend you for it, he says. And folks, I want you to know that when you have a relationship with Jesus, it's personal. I want you to look in that verse at the mize there coming from our Lord. He says, you held fast to my name. You didn't deny my faith. He was my faithful witness. Christianity is different from all other types of worship because it is personal we serve a savior who loves us and cares about us and has a personal relationship i know where you live i know what you're going through i know what's happening i i even knew antipas and you know what to me it humbles me because i think how often here Christ has placed a tombstone, so to speak, a standing memorial marker in the word of God that lives and abides forever for a man named Antipas who was faithful to him all the way through. And I wonder how often can the Lord say to me, man, you were faithful in the office today when them folks was talking some bad stuff. You was faithful when you saw something written on the stall wall about my name. You were faithful, young folks, when they're teaching you about evolution and different things that goes against the word of God and you didn't deny my faith and you didn't deny my truth and who it was. How many times can the Lord take my life and my example and put it like he did a man like Antipas? And put it up there as a marker for everyone who will ever live to read about the life and the example that I live. That also, we talked last week. We talked about our New Year's resolution. He's saying, I know your wicks, doesn't he? He says, I knew about Antipas and I know all the wicks. I know your works. I've been filling my box up with them. And oh yeah, even though he was murdered for me. I've got a tear bottle that's right there with him of all the times that we shared together. Next week, 
We're going to go in depth about Antipas and about his witness and what that meant. And you're going to be amazed and, and you'll want to be here. It's a very remarkable story of a remarkable man that was so remarkable that God put his name in his book right here as a memorial for us. So as the worship team comes on back up, isn't that the example that God wants for us? He knows where we live and he knows our society and he knows the things that's going on. But he wants you to be true to him. He wants you to not deny who he is in this world. He gave his life for you so that you can live it to glorify him. Satan's altar, the university of higher learning, everything was there that the world loves and appreciates and raises up. And he says, I know where you're at and I know what you're battling against. Even in all of that, there are a few that seek him. May you and I be inspired by this word today and by the examples of Jesus, John, Polycarp, and Antipas to walk our lives in such a way that he can say the same thing to him. Have you considered my servant? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for today was just the beginning. There is some great lessons in store through your word about what went on here. We pray, Father, that we thank you and praise you that you have brought us out of that kind of thing and washed us, justified us, sanctified us for your glory and honor. And Father, may we all be standing stones for you. May we be allowed to be used as a witness in your service for your glory and honor. And may this church here in the middle of a cornfield at the end of Morgan County, may this church that's your body glorify you in everything that we do so that we are a marker for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
pasar.